you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. From the Mon Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm Stephen Cuevas, in for John Horn. On today's show, as the coronavirus spreads, movie theaters remain open, but how much longer will they have films to screen? Then, in a documentary about Luis Miranda, his son, Lin-Manuel, says he shares more than a few similarities with Alexander Hamilton. What I keyed in on was his relentlessness. And when I got to the part in Ron Chernow's book where he writes his way off the island to get an education, I I mean, that's the part where I go, I know this dude. He raised me. (laughs) And we'll visit a music festival that's known as Europe's version of South by Southwest. That's Today on The Frame. We'll be right back. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Welcome to The Frame. I'm Stephen Cuevas, in for John Horn. It's been a devastating week for the entertainment industry as COVID-19 forces the cancellation of public gatherings all over the world. Movie theaters are struggling to cope with two major factors, declining attendance and delayed film releases from motion picture studios. Theaters around the globe have closed, but major chains like AMC and Cinemark have not yet decided to close up shop here in the U.S. Here's John Horn's discussion with senior film writer at Variety, Matt Donnelly. One thing that we've been reporting and anticipate is that theaters will close regionally, not sort of as a blanket. You know, all the movie theaters in the country are represented by a trade group called NATO. Um, But we imagine that they'll they'll try to close down in pockets as a slow wave to, to get as much, you know, revenue as they can. NATO is the National Association of Theater Owners. And just a couple of days ago, they canceled their annual convention, which was scheduled for the end of the month in Las Vegas. The other factor is that a lot of major releases are being pulled from the calendar. Disney has pulled Mulan. The new James Bond movie is not going to come out. The next Fast and Furious sequel, Fast 9, has moved to next year. There are a number of other movies that have been placed on hold What kind of problem does that create for those theaters that remain open? Because it seems like a lot of the tentpole movies aren't going to get released. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it doesn't incentivize an audience to brave public spaces when you don't have really premium and exciting new films to show them. And and also, let's talk about just the the egregious uh, spending on marketing that the studios have already completed to promote movies like Mulan and Fast 9. You're looking at hundreds of millions in losses across the board for movies that aren't going to hit theaters for another year or so. If movie theaters are considered dangerous or if they're actually closed, Might companies like Disney, and maybe it's not Mulan, maybe it's another movie down the line, just get released on Disney Plus or an equivalent streaming service? Do you think that is part of the potential conversation going forward? 
I can tell you confidently that over the past month or so, that the studios have all been, you know, they won't dare speak out loud <laughs> the strategy of going directly to digital. But don't forget that a lot of these companies are publicly traded. So they have an onus to create value for shareholders. And if they can't get their movies out through theaters, they might be obliged to release them through streaming for higher price points um, or just to incentivize customers to stay. But yeah, I think absolutely this is a reason to, uh, to look at sort of um, shattering what we call the, the, the traditional theatrical window, which is where movie theaters get 90 days of exclusivity with all the top movies that come out, and then they move down to places like streaming and on-demand. Uh, I think you could absolutely see some of the, the mid-range films. If you take something like Marvel's New Mutants, which is a sort of young adult skewing property, I don't think that anyone's expecting that to blow minds in the movie theater. They could easily put that directly on Hulu, which Disney owns, and, and, and see an uptick in subscribers. Just before we got on the phone, I looked at the stock of Cineworld, which runs Regal, United Artists, and Edwards Theatres. Its stock is down almost 80% in the last month compared to the overall market dropping about 25%. Cinemark, another major chain, has seen its stock drop almost 60%. And at the same time, Netflix is down just 17%, which is better than the overall market. So it feels like Wall Street sentiment on the at least short-term potential for exhibition is really grim. And at the same time, a lot of movies in production are shutting down as well. And that won't be felt for months, if not a year down the line. Is that going to be a factor as well, not just for exhibition, but for streaming services? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we've been having conversations about, uh, you, you know, even take the last round of uh, film festivals that went up. You know, independent films go in search of distribution all the time to, to places like Toronto, Telluride, and Sundance. I think you'll see a, a spike in sales of those finished movies um, that they can put up on services today. But in terms of original production at places like Netflix and Amazon, I think the, the impact will be dramatic. Um, you know, Netflix just opened a brand new six downstage facility in New Mexico where they intended to shoot the new season of Stranger Things. That will be delayed. You're talking about like serious marquee properties for the streamers. So I think, yeah, there will be a bit of a, a shuffle to either license beloved prized old content to put on or, or a scramble to find finished work that they can put up. In the near term, it does feel like some smaller exhibition chains are trying to come up with creative solutions. Alamo Drafthouse said that it, in its San Francisco theater, it's doing something where no more than 200 people can be in the theater and it's going to ask people to kind of separate themselves from one another. It feels like an interesting idea. I don't know how sustainable it is. Are you hearing other things like that where people can buy seats and maybe block off the seats around them? Or is it just whatever you find when you get into the auditorium? I think you'll find a lot of people finding creative solutions to enjoy the, the movie theater. But I think at the end of the day, there's so much option. Um, and, and there's just such a volume of content you can watch at home. Um, so I think it's, it's just more about separating the, uh, the brave from those who would rather self-isolate. And you and I cover the movie business. I haven't been in a theater in at least, I guess, a week and a half. How are people who cover movies seeing movies? Are a lot of people now watching films on their laptops as opposed to going to screenings or theaters? Absolutely. Um, you know, I went to a screening of a short film at one of the talent agencies last week and um, sat in a row with Laura Dern, who just gave everybody an elbow bump to say hello instead of a handshake. So I think people are increasingly, yeah, quite skittish about um, coming together. So I think you'll see a lot more digital screeners for, for industry professionals. Another interesting note, um, as of last night, 
the South by Southwest Film Festival organized a last minute sort of virtual festival with an online screening library to try to give some of those indies that didn't get to play a chance to get in front of accredited press and critics, which I think is really cool and also a kind of creative solution that keeps everybody healthy. Matt Donnelly is a senior film writer at Variety. Matt, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Stay healthy. After John's conversation with Matt Donnelly, AMC Theatres and Regal Cinemas announced they are reducing capacity in their auditoriums by 50% starting tomorrow. Coming up on The Frame, Lin-Manuel Miranda came to Sundance this year with a documentary about his father called Siempre Luis. Everybody in the neighborhood is dressing up to be there too. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm Stephen Cuevas, in for John Horn. Today, we're bringing you John's interview with composer and playwright Lin-Manuel Miranda, his father Luis Miranda, and director John James, who made a documentary about the elder Miranda called Siempre Luis. It's about Luis Miranda's life, how he came to New York from Puerto Rico in the 1970s and made a career in politics, founding the nonprofit Hispanic Federation and helping get some of the most powerful politicians in the country elected. It also chronicles Luis and Lin-Manuel Miranda's involvement in relief efforts after Hurricane Maria, not long after Luis suffered a heart attack, including how they brought a production of Hamilton to Puerto Rico after the devastating storm. Siempre Luis premiered at the Sundance Film Festival this January. At the time, Puerto Rico was being hit by a sequence of earthquakes. So that's where John Horn started the conversation. Here's Luis Miranda. We're here in Park City with my brother, my sister and my sister-in-law and the mornings always begin these days with how many earthquakes occurred last night in the island so it's omnipresent uh in the life of puerto ricans not only on the island but in the diaspora and uh doing everything we can uh it's it's an important component of the things that we need to do here in the diaspora Lin-Manuel, I think in the wake of the hurricane, part of the problem for a lot of people, including the president, is this idea that Puerto Rico is not part of the United States. How would statehood change that conversation? Because so much of the conversations about Puerto Rico is like, they're not us. They're not Americans. We don't have to take care of them. We've also never been more demonized by a president uh, than we are this current one, right? It's, um, it is, he's constantly otherizing Puerto Rico and... That helps no one. It helps no one on the island. It helps no one who uh, didn't grow up understanding this weird, unique colonial status that Puerto Rico, uh, where Puerto Rico lives. And, um, and you know, I think that uh, it's, it's, 
it's really tricky. And, 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 you know, with Hurricane Maria, we had the sort of hurricane fatigue of there had been two hurricanes that had hit the mainland uh, before Maria hit. And then with these earthquakes, you know, we've continued the work of working with the Hispanic Federation, who basically set up shop after Maria and never left, um, and are working with local mayors. Like, it's, it's sort of, we are handing out solar panels and solar uh, flashlights and, and, and continuing to do the work because... The earthquakes haven't stopped. There were two this morning. John, I'm going to ask you about your idea to start the film. What was behind it and who was your first call? I met Luis in 2008. I was working for a political consulting firm and uh, I met him in the kitchen of that political consulting firm. I, My mother's Puerto Rican. In the kitchen, he was wearing a guayabera on top of a black turtleneck, which was a dead giveaway or at least a conversation starter. <laughs> it was a clear... F you to the I, New York I winter. I have no idea why people are not wearing that. I just say. I mean, we <laughs> we started talking. The Guayabera was a conversation started. And he's just that kind of person where, um, you know, from there it kind of just launched uh, not only a kind of a professional relationship, but a personal one. Um, the Puerto Rican background, that tie certainly was the icebreaker. But he was someone who I immediately knew um, to stay close to. I would listen to him. I would ask him for advice on my career. And um, that was in 2008. And then fast forward many years later, um, at a certain point, I just began to write down some of the things that he was telling me. I learned a little bit about his um, experience on the island, leaving Puerto Rico at 18. He had a job at Sears. He was a problem solver at Sears. He worked in the credit relations department, I believe, or the, he was a credit manager there. Yeah. And people would have problems and they'd come to him and he would solve them. And he just left Puerto Rico at 18, leaves everything behind, a wife, um, you know, a great job, you know, the possibility of a career. He comes to New York and within years- I only made three fifteen an hour, just for the record. Within years, he's running a campaign for Senator Schumer. He wins. And then he's running uh, uh, the, the New York Senate campaign for Hillary Clinton. He wins that. Um, and then he kind of begins to transition into a kind of a role in his son's life. And then I was interested in the sort of the, the origin story there. Luis, I want to ask you about a movie or a musical that plays a key role in your story, and that is The Unsinkable Molly Brown. I'm sure you guys are so close to Denver that everyone in Park City, I'm sure, knows about The Unsinkable it's Molly Brown. It's been a tough reality for him to realize that not everybody knows, knows about it. The Unsinkable Molly Brown. I have no idea why. So for people who don't know, Molly Brown survived the Titanic. The few people that don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But her story is in some ways your story, that you are the unsinkable Luis Miranda. And I'm wondering about that idea, because I think there's this reference to this idea that you were raised on a steady diet of American bootstrap <laughs> narratives, and Molly Brown is certainly one of them. For me, Molly Brown, when I saw the movie, I was 10. This is 1964. And I remember leaving the theater like, oh my God. And then, someday... You really can push forward and move ahead and leave behind circumstances. And sort of that's what I got uh, out of the, of the movie. So if you go from nowhere on the road to somewhere and you meet anyone, you know it's me. I'm gonna move from place to place. And, find and I, you know, when, when, I, when I got to New York that night, those were the days of TV guys. Uh, you didn't have the guy on the, on the TV. And I looked at the TV guide, uh, 
and they have the unsinkable Milo Brown around two o'clock in the morning. First, I was pissed because why should such a fantastic movie be shown at two o'clock in the morning where everyone is sleeping? You didn't expect this to become a Molly Brown evangelism <laughs> interview, did you? But, but again, when I saw it, I'm always afraid to relive something that happens in the past because it never comes right. But when I saw it again, I said, you know, I, I was right. This is my new adventure, uh, and it's my new, new adventure now in the U.S. We're talking with Lin-Manuel Miranda, Luis Miranda, and John James about their documentary, Siempre Luis. Lin, hearing your dad talk about Unsinkable Molly Brown and knowing what his life is like, it's clear that Molly Brown, Luis Miranda, and Alexander Hamilton are in some ways the same story, aren't they? Yes. In many ways, I'm, very, I'm really grateful to JJ because um, he has saved me a lot of work. Um, you know, I always sort of explain uh, that Hamilton... Uh, what I keyed in on was his relentlessness. And when I sort of got to the part in Ron Chernow's book where he writes his way off the island to get an education, I, I mean, that's the part where I go, I know this dude. He raised me. <laughs> um, and it's also, he said, you know, Luis Miranda's a character. I mean, that's the thing that JJ sort of keyed in on and, and put a camera on him at the right time uh, during a very eventful time in his life. Um, he's a really singular character. And so... I feel like people who have seen Hamilton and wonder how much of me is in Hamilton, they're going to see this doc and go, oh, I get it now. Luis, in the film, you talk about your parents and about how relentless they were about achievement. If you got a 95 and somebody else got a 100 on a test, you need to go figure out a way to get those other five points. And there's a moment in the film where your son, Lynn, has to make a decision about his life and about whether or not he should do what his job is, which is teaching, or what his calling is, which is theater. And you have a correspondence about that decision, and it's a beautiful moment in the film. I'm wondering about your feelings in watching that scene and Lynn about hearing that story all over again and how it easily could have gone the other direction, right? For a very, very long time, uh, I kept telling Lin-Manuel, because we had no doubt ever, ever since this kid was a baby that he would be in show business. Uh -huh. So we spoke a lot about Ruben Blades, uh, who is a magnificent performer and artist and writer and a lawyer from a prestigious university. So I kept telling Lin-Manuel, Ruben Blades, it's your idol. You could go and get a law degree and continue to do your art because you have it in Ruben Blades. But I, I knew that that was not real. It was more my fantasy of what should happen. <laughs> and I, I push my fantasies as much as I can. I also have a wife uh, who's totally grounded in reality who kept telling me, Honey, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Give it up. Uh, so this was the moment where, where I could come straight and, and say to him, I, I wish I could tell you uh, to get a real job, uh, but that's not going to happen. So let's follow your dreams. What about that moment, Lynn, where you really are at a crossroads? Yeah, I, I was sort of, you know, the, 
the difficulty was not that uh, I didn't like teaching. The difficulty was that I loved teaching. Um, I still I still love teaching. Um, so I could very easily see the Mr. Holland's Opus version of my life before me, where I happily teach at my old high school and and never finish that symphony. You know what I mean? Um, and so um, I was I was happy he he nudged me in the way he did, and um, and it was a more uncertain. 20s cuz you're 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 kind of you're hoping teachers get sick. I was basically a professional substitute teacher until I was a Broadway composer. That was my that and whatever else I needed to do on those months when no one was sick was was how I paid rent until until Heights opened. Louise, so you have used your community organizing skills to get votes for Chuck Schumer, Ed Koch, sell tickets for In the Heights. How are you going to go about selling this movie which comes to Park City without a distributor? Something that I have been learning, uh, particularly since the heart attack, it's that it is not my job. So I will enjoy the moment, I will enjoy the movie, and it's somebody else's job to sell it. This is new thinking for you. Yes. <laughs> it's He's trying it on. We'll see how it fits. He also, <laughs> chose, he also packed my clothes for this weekend because he couldn't help himself. <laughs> Lynn Manuel, Luis, and John, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks. Siempre Luis was picked up by HBO at Sundance. A release date has yet to be announced. Coming up on the frame, imagine South by Southwest in the Netherlands. We visit the Eurosonic Music Festival. Harole is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of congee, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Limerick Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA's a big place with a lot going on, so we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm Stephen Cuevas, in for John Horn. In January, tens of thousands of people gathered in the Netherlands for the Eurosonic Music Festival, Europe's version of South by Southwest. It featured 350 musical acts that hail from all over, Austria to Ukraine. If you're a fan of world music, then it's the place to be. The Frame contributor Sonia Narang visited the festival and filed this report. On a cold winter night in the northern Dutch city of Groningen, a crowd crammed into the Grand Theater, dancing to music rarely heard here. Huduro beats from the African nation of Angola. An Afro-Portuguese singer who goes by Pongo took the stage in a gold sequin outfit and brought down the house with her pulsating rhythms. This energetic musical style originally came about during Angola's turbulent past. Pongo says performing it gives her a sense of freedom. She was born in Angola and moved to Portugal as a child. I was eight years old and it was a bit hard integrating into Portuguese society. Since Kuduro music started taking over the scene, I finally feel like a part of the society. From that moment on, I found my world in Portugal, and I feel like I'm home.
At the Eurosonic Festival, music fans from around the world are treated to a buffet of sounds from more than 30 countries. The festival's artistic director is Robert Meyerink. Since almost 35 years, we're focusing on emerging new acts from Europe. There are so many people from different backgrounds, not only from Europe, but also from abroad. Of course, it's very important to share knowledge, to make each other understand what's going on. What began as a battle of the bands between Dutch and Belgian musicians evolved into a major event that showcases all genres. Gaida is a Dutch-Sudanese hip-hop and soul musician who lives in the southern Netherlands. She sings in a blend of Arabic and English and has used her music to bring attention to the conflict in Sudan. Music is the only way I know how to like speak. For me, it's like it's my exhale, but it's also my like way to understand how I'm feeling as well. She dedicated her song Morning Blue to her ancestral homeland. She had just returned from visiting Sudan a week before this concert. I wanted to do my part from where, like, as much as I could in my, like, corner. For me, it's always like, okay, yeah, this is my song from my home. This multicultural richness was on full display at Eurosonic. Kenyan rapper Muthoni the Drummer Queen blends English and Swahili languages and performs with Swiss collaborators. Her catchy song, Suzy Noma, is an anthem for self-made women like her. It's an opportune moment to be an African and an African woman. Now we're just owning it and we can share it in, in ways that I suppose Europe understands. So I'm excited about my role in that. I'm terrified about my role in that. During the festival, venues from old churches to record shops come alive with music. Down the street, the Martini Church turned into a Portuguese fado house. That's a musical style popular in the cafes of Lisbon, and the operatic singer Lina brought it to the Netherlands. Her Spanish collaborator, Raul Refri, previously teamed up with flamenco music star Rosalia, and he now puts a new spin on fado music. We started to, to play together and it was magic. We understood each other, the way I was playing and the way, the way she was singing really melted together very well. It's beautiful and it's super emotional. A Eurosonic musician with Caribbean roots is Charlotte Adegiri of Belgium. One of her electropop tracks, sung in the Creole language, was picked up by the HBO show trailer for The New Pope. My mom was always singing and it was a way of expressing ourselves at home as well. And that's also a very Caribbean thing to express yourself through music, through dance and singing. In the same basement venue, another Belgian artist took the stage on a different night. Known as Luz and the Yakuza, the Congo-born Rwanda race singer kept the audience transfixed with her gripping French lyrics. Eurosonic sets the stage for another big European musical extravaganza coming up in the Netherlands, the super popular Eurovision Song Contest this May. For The Frame, I'm Sonia Narang. And that's all for today. Thanks to Taylor McFerrin, who supplies our opening theme music. 
And one more note before we go. Because KPCC wants to bring you all the latest coronavirus news, we've paused our membership drive. But we can't exactly pause our vital need for support from people like you. Today, your gift will be matched dollar for dollar thanks to a generous gift from Gordon and Donna Crawford. And you can donate online at kpcc.org. I'm Stephen Cuevas. We're back here Monday from the Moan Broadcast Center. Have a safe weekend. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events.